Welcome to Defend the Faith Live. Defend the Faith Live is a Perusia podcast series where we join Dr. Robert Haddad to take a look at a chapter a month of Defend the Faith, Dr. Haddad's excellent book on Catholic apologetics, with host Matthew Herman Tay. In this episode, we cover justification and salvation. Defend the Faith Live is recorded online with a live audience in Perusia world. To be part of the live online audience during these recordings and to interact in the live member-only Q&A sessions that follow, please join us in Perusia World by visiting perusiamedia.com and clicking on Perusia World for all the information on how to join. Perusia Podcast is produced in partnership with EWTN Asia Pacific and Voice of Charity Radio Australia. Dr. Robert Haddad, welcome back to Perusia World. How are you this evening? Oh, very good, Matthew. Thank you. Very good. Great. And thank you for joining us once again for this uh, uh, incredible project, Defend the Faith Live, where we look at a chapter a month of your book, Defend the Faith on Catholic Apologetics. So thank you for, uh, for your commitment to this project. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you too. So this is uh, number four for us and we've uh, covered some big subjects but we're we're really going to cover a quite a big one tonight aren't we dr haddad Uh, tonight's subject of course being justification and salvation well this is the huge one really i mean Mm. this is the core of the um the whole protestant project so to speak Mm. what they call the reformation what we call the protestant revolt it all hinged initially around this issue how are we just made just in the eyes of god how do we achieve our final salvation and of course we have from classical protestantism namely lutheranism calvinism the battle cry of justification by faith alone and what does that entail because there's a whole series of other subtopics that are called up uh you know uh brought together in this whirlpool of debate yes yeah this is uh this is really a huge one and uh, as you say this is one of those uh major divisions between um protestants and catholics and so uh, how is how important is it that we get the catholic understanding um and um the the apologetics against the protestant understandings how important is it Well, it's absolutely critical because the Catholic position is not just one position among many variants. The Catholic position essentially reflects the gospel, essentially essentially reflects what Jesus Christ taught. And, you know, I've often looked at a couple of passages in the gospels, and I wonder why this debate even takes place, because we have different people, the rich young man, the, the lawyer who both ask Jesus the same question, Lord, what must I do to be saved? There it is. There's the question. Jesus Christ gives the answer. We read it in Mark 10. We read it in Luke 10. We read it in Luke 18. And that that answer cannot be owned uh, by a a Catholic or a Protestant as, as a Catholic or Protestant answer. It is the answer of Jesus Christ that we are all bound to to adhere to and to teach. And the Catholic Church, in my opinion, after many years of study in this area, I'm absolutely convinced it is the Catholic Church that has it right. Mm -hmm. And the correct understanding, not just of Jesus Christ and what he taught, but what others taught, essentially St. Paul, St. James, and St. John, collectively, Uh, a proper reflection on all the verses in question, we find that they are teaching the same thing with regards to justification and salvation. Yeah, this is in fact the the subject that really started my journey home because of course, as many know, that I came home via Protestantism and it was this exact passage um, from the gospel by the rich young man, what must I do to be saved? 
that I heard and that I started asking myself because I had had a very sinful past and I wanted to make reparation and I wanted to be the best Christian I could possibly be because of what Jesus had done for me. I mean, he literally plucked me out of the suburbs of hell and all I wanted to do was to, to serve him in return. And so I too was asking, you know, what must I do? to be saved. And when I was asking that question in Bible studies or amongst Protestant friends, I got no consistent answer. So um, we are, of course, referring to your book, Defend the Faith, which can be purchased from the Perusia store. And we've got a number of questions here in the book. So those mm -hmm. following along, we're on page 30 in Justification and Salvation. And uh, so there's that all famous question, that, that, that question that um, we, we so often hear, Robert, are you born again? The answer is yes, I am born again. But what do we mean by that? Because the Protestant question uh, implies a Protestant answer. Yes, I'm born again by accepting Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Saviour. And I say, hey, that's great. I've done that. I continue to do that. I believe in Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, but the Lord and Savior of the whole world. And then when I believe in this Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah, to be Lord, to be God, to be Savior, I therefore uh, commit myself to believe everything he taught. What did Jesus teach? So it's not enough simply to believe in Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. I must actually, when I accept him as Lord, accept what he taught. And when it comes to born again, he taught what that is in John 3, verses 3 to 5. And the interesting thing, for those who assert we must be born again, they rarely uh, refer to born again by water and the Spirit. So my question is, what did Jesus mean by born again of water and the spirit. And in 1999, I was in a debate in a house with a ex-Lebanese Maronite who had become a, a, a particular Protestant preacher, pastor of his own house church. And he said, born again of water and the spirit actually means being born again, body and soul, because the body is 90% water. And the spirit represents the soul. And I looked at him very incredulous and I said, you don't really believe that. That's a forced interpretation to avoid what really is the obvious Catholic answer, which is born again involves water baptism. It does involve accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but it involves uh, being baptized in by water with the spirit it is jesus himself who commands baptism and we'll have a look at those verses later on so i'm born again by accepting christ being baptized and then living the christian life which is the life of the commandments the ten commandments as laws of love mm. yeah because uh, that's jesus's response to the rich young man isn't it yeah and and essentially Jesus, well, let's go to those verses so I get it mm. correct. Mm. Okay, I'm going, I'm looking at, um, Luke 18, 18 to 20. We have a lawyer in Luke 10, 25 to 27, and we have a ruler in Luke 18, 18 to 20. The rich young man, that is in, Mark 10, and it's essentially the same. And the ruler asked him, well, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy, your father and mother. And Basically, Jesus is commanding us, if we wish to enter into an eternal life, yes, we believe in him, but we must live the Christian life, and that is living out the Ten Commandments. In Luke 10, 25 to 27, Jesus responds by saying, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And that is a actually better way of rendering 
the Ten Commandments as laws of love of God and neighbor. This is the moral law that's an imperative on all of us. It, the Ten Commandments are an expression of the natural law, which apply to us as human beings forever. They're not optional. They are obligatory, arising from our human nature. So the life of the Christian is a life of faith in Christ, hope in God to give us everything we need, all the help we need to achieve final salvation, because we can't do it by our own strength, and love. Love of God above all things and our neighbour is ourselves. And I've often looked at this uh, issue as like a, the analogy I use is the analogy of a tree. A tree is rooted in the ground, has strong trunk and branches and bears fruit. And the analogies here is that the roots are our faith and the trunk and the branches are our hope and the fruit is our charity. What the farmer wants to see is the fruit on the tree. That's why he plants the tree. What the Lord Jesus wants to see in us is the fruit bearing from our lives in Christ, which, which is the fruit here being charity, love of God, love of neighbor. Thank you for that. And what we're seeing here really is the, the Catholic understanding of faith and works, isn't it? Of course, most Protestant reject works um, out of hand as, as having anything to do with our, our justification or our salvation. Uh, could you, for a moment, just explain the difference between faith and works in the Catholic understanding? Well, well, in the Catholic understanding, let's get an understanding of what works are. They're not simply actions. They're not, uh, St. Paul, when he said, we're not justified by works or words to that effect, was saying that we're not justified by the works of the law, okay? Um, that is circumcision dietary prescriptions, ceremonial washings, particular sacrifices done in the temple. They're the works of the law that do not justify the Christian. What justifies the Christian is faith in Christ and a life of love in faith. So the works must be works of love, okay? Uh, not simply works that we can add up and total as, okay, this is the pile of bricks I've I've piled up, and well, this is what I've built here physically. It's not that type of work. The works must be works of love. And uh, to give you one quote here that sums it up, St. Paul, Galatians 5, 6, one of my most favourite quotes that debunks faith alone um, theology or ideology more correctly. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail. So St. Paul's saying there, it's not any of the works of the law that get us to heaven, that make us justified or saved, but faith working through love. Not faith alone, but faith that works through love. You don't find St. Paul using faith alone anywhere. You find St. James using the term faith alone. And he's the only one who does. But when he does it in his epistle, we go to chapter 2, verses 14, 17, 20 to 26. He uses faith alone to condemn it. We're not justified by faith alone. So that's the only time faith alone is mentioned in the New Testament, when it's actually condemned. Hmm. So uh, would you then describe faith and belief as being uh, uh, synonymous? Well, it must be more than an intellectual faith, okay? Mm. In this aspect, the Protestant reformers had some valid points. Mm. Okay, the demons' beliefs, and James, in, in the same epistle I just quoted from, makes it clear that the demons believe in God. They do not see God face to face, so they have a faith in God. They believe he exists, but what do they lack in their hell, in their torment? Mm. They lack hope and love. So our faith, yes, we believe in God. We, we believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. But that faith can't be just an intellectual acceptance of God's existence and Christ, Christ's status as Lord and Saviour. We must trust, we must love. Okay, so what Protestantism does when they talk about faith alone, what they're doing is they're actually compressing hope and love under the one definition of faith. Well, the, the Catholic 
who knows his faith, knows that faith, hope, and love are all essential, work together, but they're distinct. And we know yeah. they're distinct because St. Paul says they are in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Okay, so he doesn't, in his definition of faith, uh, include hope and love. And St. Paul on numerous occasions speaks about hope as something distinct from faith. But hope and love are, are born out of faith. Okay, yeah. we can't be justified by love alone or by hope alone. We're not justified by faith alone. We're not justified by works alone. This is not Catholic teaching. We're justified by faith that works itself out in love, a faith that trusts in God. That's it. It's as simple as that. The debate is over. Amen. So as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, the Protestants uh, believe that when we are justified is when we, when we come to believe in Jesus and that it's a moment in space and time somewhere in the past. So what do Catholics believe with regards to justification? Do, are we increasing in justification as we increase in love? Well, that's true. That's correct. Now, there's, there's very complex theologies here. The Protestant view is that, well, the fundamentalist, the evangelical view is that justification occurs through a one-off act of faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. And when we're justified, we get a, a, an, the imputed righteousness of Christ externally imposed upon us so um yes we're covered in christ mystically covered in christ's merit so that when we die when god when we're judged by christ he sees himself rather than our sinful nature but in the protestant understanding of justification there's no renewal there's no renovation we're just simply our sinful depraved nature is simply covered by christ's merits there's no in inherent renewal. Um, this, the Catholic view, though, is that when we're justified, we're not just simply declared to be righteous. We just, we're not simply imputed with Christ's righteousness. We actually receive Christ's righteousness. We are infused with his righteousness. We are made holy. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, a couple of passages that, that support that, um, where we have, St. Peter saying that we actually have a creative participation in God's own divine life. Now, I'm, I'm struggling here to find, yes, here it is. It's 2 Peter 1 to 4. We become partakers of the divine nature. And the other verse that gives mm -hmm. evidence to this Catholic understanding of justification, when we're justified, we're renewed internally, is john 14 23 if a man loves me he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come and make our abode in him that's the life of uncreated grace the life of the blessed trinity in the souls of the just so when we are justified in the catholic understanding we are actually made righteous and it's an ongoing righteousness we we have to keep working at it um, that's why St. Paul was saying in his letter to the Philippians, we work out our salvation in fear and trembling. That is, we always need to be continually uh, in a, renewing our faith, renewing our hope, renewing our acts of love to remain in grace. And everything we do that's righteous in a state of grace, we increase in justification. We increase the life. God infuses extra grace in our souls. And when we die, we receive a greater reward in heaven and greater glory. And there's so many passages again in scripture that speak about how uh, the more we do for God in grace, the more we're rewarded. Now, the evidence that we do more, that different people do more for God in the life of grace is in Matthew 13, 18. The seed that fell in the good soil, some produced a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. So we do see there different people responding in, to diff in different measures to God's grace. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 8, and Paul says that each shall receive his wages according to his labor. So the more we do for God in grace, in faith, the more we will receive a, heaven, a greater heavenly glory. And 
St. Paul speaking about the glorified resurrected body in 1 Corinthians 15, 41 says, there's one, the glory of the sun, another, the glory of the moon and, uh, and another, the glory of the stars and the stars differ from star and glory, which means each soul in heaven will shine with a different glory in proportion to their merits. The, the merits God graciously rewards us for the good works we do in faith. And finally, I'll give you Revelation 22, 12. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense to repay everyone for what he has done. Mm. So we're going to be repaid for, again, the more we do, the more we will be repaid. And there's one quote, not in front of me now, but that I know of is 2 Corinthians 5.10. Very important passage, which speaks about, let me find it. If I can, to, here it is. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive good or evil according to what he's done in the body. Fantastic. Well, so, that's a, a summation. And there are other quotes I haven't referred to that reinforce all this Catholic teaching. Yes, excellent. Thank you. Um, so the Protestant argument is, is, of course, that no, it's a justification is to do with that once event when you come to faith in Christ and we have that that imputed uh, declaration it's a juridical declaration a legal declaration it doesn't actually produce any change um, in a previous episode we've already um, mentioned uh, Titus 3 5 in which St mm -hmm. Paul tells us that we are saved by the washing of regeneration uh, so it would seem that, that that one passage right there seems to fly in the face of the Protestant idea that you're saved right, through faith alone, because it seems that uh, we need to have baptism. Am I on the right track there? Absolutely. Let's look at verses that relate to baptism. Now we go back to what we said at the beginning, John 3, 3 to 5, born again of water and the spirit. So for many Protestants, baptism is simply an ordinance. For example, the Salvation Army, they believe it's not necessary for salvation because it's a work. All you need for salvation is faith. So you don't need any rituals or actions, which are works. But what we see here, um, 1 Peter 3.21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Well, how does baptism save us if Christ is Savior? Because baptism comes from the side of Christ. It's born from him. It's one of the fruits of the new tree of life that he planted on Mount Calvary. It re, re, it re kicks, it kickstarts our spiritual life formally, restores the life of grace that Adam and Eve originally had. Then we got Mark 16, 16, where Jesus said, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. It's not just he who believes shall be saved. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And again, there's another verse I'll mention, not here, Matthew 28, 19 to 21. Why does Jesus command his disciples to baptize all nations? If he's commanding them to baptize all nations in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, all nations doesn't leave any room for option. Okay? If there's, we see there what's implied is the obligation to not only baptize all nations, but for all who know of Christ's command to receive baptism. And your quote from Titus 3, 5 to 7, we have here the words describing baptism by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. There it is. That is the formal beginning of the life of grace in the souls of infants, for example, and adults regeneration born again of water in the spirit the born again is the regeneration the water is the pouring it's just an instrumental cause by itself it can't wash the soul of sin well how can the water wash the soul of sin because the holy spirit is there using the water as an instrument to wash sin and sin is washed away by the infusion of the life of god into the soul that's why we baptize infants because there's nothing in the infant to prevent this washing of regeneration, this pouring of God's grace into the soul of the infant, which all infants were intended to have in God's original plan before original sin. Before original sin, Adam and Eve were to conceive and bear children, and those children would have been conceived and born in grace through no choice of their own, but by God's plan. 
Infant baptism is a form of restoration of God's original plan for humanity and children in particular. Thank you. Uh, now, a Protestant uh, who would be arguing against us might be saying that uh, baptism and all the stuff we're describing is to do with sanctification, not justification. So firstly, would you be able to describe the Catholic understanding of sanctification? Well, see, sanctification, when we're made holy, that's how we're justified, okay? For the Protestant, um, the you're justified by faith alone. So works can't have anything to do with your justification. Your works flow as a sign of your justification and they relate to your sanctification, but there's an artificial barrier between the two. Mm. For Catholics, when you're justified, you are sanctified. Remember the Protestant understanding, the forensic imputation of Christ's merits which is the same for everyone, does not inherently regenerate the person. They're not sanctified. So justification really has nothing to do with sanctification for classical Protestantism. While for Catholics, of course, the justification process does sanctify you. It's just that we can increase in justification as we increase in sanctification. And the sanctification uh, the works that we do post-justification are not simply signs that were justified. They are actually um, consciously, uh, conscious acts deliberately made by the Christian in obedience to Christ, and they are necessary fruits of justification in order to remain pleasing in God's sight. We can't simply have a one-off act by which we're justified and then for the rest of our lives just sit back on our laurels and say hey i'm saved i'm born again i'm saved i can't lose my salvation by the way that's osis once saved always saved this is an evangelical uh belief system particularly baptist I, and i encounter baptists who believe this one of my dear friends in high school was an osis baptist who's who said that you know it doesn't matter if you you know fall into sin afterwards you you you, you are saved and you, you can't lose your salvation well i mean that's not what the gospel tells us you know the gospel tells us he who you know perseveres until the end shall be saved matthew 10 22. <laughs> now, there's a necessity for perseverance which is not through our own efforts but god's grace working with us and we correspond with god's grace continuously to do good and avoid evil and to remain faithful yeah, and of course, the implication of uh, perseverance, uh, those who persevere to the end will be saved, is that those who don't persevere to the end will not, is that, which is, uh, you know, that's an obvious implication uh, in that uh, statement. So uh, as I'm understanding it, we can increase in both sanctification and justification because they're so intimately related. Um, St. Catherine of uh, Siena tells us that when it comes to the interior life and holiness, there's no such thing as standing still. We're either moving towards God or away from God. So can we also decrease in justification and sanctification, Robert? Yes. I mean, if, if we become presumptuous or slack, then we begin to, to slide. And that begins by losing our fervor, our enthusiasm. We begin to cut back practices of prayer, meditation, we begin to, uh, we become less vigilant with respect to our behavior. Fault defects become faults, which become venial sins, which tarnish the life of grace, weaken the life of grace, make us more vulnerable to temptation, beginning in our imagination, then you know, inf beginning to influence our will. And then this, this tepidness that we've fallen into uh, you know, it won't be too long before we start falling into mortal sin. And, you know, if we don't put the brakes there through some sudden shock or realisation, etc., cetera, uh, then we can fall into a perpetual rut that leads to despair uh, and, and, uh, and eventual apostasy. I've seen this happen with people. Mm. Okay, so I've seen very fervent Catholics and Protestants who, you know, you think, wow, that's just rock solid, super enthusiastic. They're doing so much for God. And then you meet them years later and they've completely lost it. Mm. Um, and so we have to be vigilant. And I need to be vigilant. And I know I need to be vigilant and fight the, the battle, firstly, in my imagination and then in my will 
and continue to persevere in what I'm doing. Um, yeah, I don't presume anything with respect to my salvation. I know that I could lose it. I do believe that you can lose your salvation. And it's not because God wills it, according to Calvinist theology, but because we are required to cooperate with God's grace as free beings. Now, here's some other technical words. Um, monogism, synergism, evangelicals are, are monogists. They believe that we don't cooperate with God's grace. God is all almighty, all-powerful, um, and he predestines those who will be saved, and he predestines them to perseverance, and that we don't actually do anything to cooperate with God's grace. It's one-way traffic, because original sin for them destroyed our free will, so we don't have a free will to cooperate with God's grace. We're elected, and we can't unelect ourselves. We can't lose our salvation. Uh, but in, in Catholicism, which is I, which I believe is authentic Christianity, uh, we are free despite original sin. The wound of original sin wounds us by excessive self-love. But God's grace enlightens us, strengthens us, moves us to accept Him, and continually works with us so that we continue to accept Him, and that. We, this is what we call synergism, a cooperation between God's will and our will. Free cooperation, through which, it, which is a cooperation in love, of love, God for us and us for him. And uh, yes, if we freely choose to stop cooperating, uh, God's hand is still outstretched to us, but we can pull our hand out, back, and we can fall away again. And if I, let me find one or two verses about how we could lose our salvation. Um, because because yeah, once once we've done that sort of the, that that backsliding we've lost the fervor and you were sort of describing the sort of a descent into more and more habitual sin once we cross that line uh where we've committed mortal sin we've lost our justification and sanctification at that point haven't we and yeah, we've lost charity yep. we lost charity and we yep. can go further we can despair and lose hope and then we can lose faith through apostasy, okay? Now, I've got a couple of quotes here which talk about how we can lose our salvation. Two I'll read, Romans 11.22, note the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So what does that mean? We need to continue in his kindness. That's cooperation. That's synergism. Otherwise, we'll be cut off. We can lose our salvation. And then we have here uh, Hebrews 10, 26 to 27. For if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, we receive the truth. We embrace Christ, okay? There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversary. So hellfire awaits those who fall away, who deliberately sin after receiving the truth. And one last quote, excuse me, this is the famous 1 Corinthians 9.27, St. Paul, I pommel my body and subdue it lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. So St. Paul there, who's so the so-called father of Protestant, you know, theology with respect to justification and salvation, St. Paul himself says, I need to pummel my body, that is, do penance, be vigilant, otherwise I too could be disqualified. What does disqualified here mean? From salvation, from heaven. Yeah, absolutely. So with all this in mind, then, and understanding that we Catholics do believe that we can lose our salvation, uh, what should be our response to Protestants when they walk up to us on the street and say, hi, are you saved? My answer is yes, but it's a bit complex. See, these simple one-line questions don't have simple one-line answers. I'm saved objectively by Christ's cross on the cross. There's the objective redemption. Christ died on the cross, offered that sacrifice to the Father on behalf of the whole of humanity. So the whole of humanity has been saved. But what about me? I'm saved by saying yes to that. I, I, then I live my life in Christ obediently. 
I accept baptism and I live out the commandments on a daily basis with his grace. So I'm being saved, right? Mm. I morally, my conscience told me that morally I'm in grace and I'm working out my salvation in fear and trembling and I will be saved, but the will be saved is future tense and the will be saved is, yes, that I must persevere until the end. Mm. If I will be saved, if I persevere until the end, I'm not this idea that, hey, I've accepted Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm saved. I have assurance of salvation. I have assurance mm. of perseverance. I'm assured that if I die now, I'll go to heaven. Well, St. Paul didn't believe that. We mm. just saw quotes where St. Paul, you know, one, where in, okay, what was that verse again? Uh, 1 Corinthians 9.27, uh, unless after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. So St. Paul mm. believed he could fall and not persevere. And then later on, we read St. Paul saying um, in one, where is it? We have it here. All right. 1 Corinthians 4, 4. Did St. Paul believe that if he died at any time, he would go straight to heaven? This is what he said. Mm. I'm mm. not aware of anything against myself. Very careful. We have a conscience. We do an examination of conscience. And I think to myself, well, I'm not aware of anything serious. You know, I do believe morally that I'm doing good and avoiding evil, being faithful, but I'm not thereby quitted. Mm. I don't judge myself. Mm. There's no presumption here on Paul's part. Mm. It is the Lord who judges me. That's the attitude all Catholics should have, the attitude St. Mm. Paul had. I don't go around saying, hey, if I die tonight, I'm going to go to heaven. I say, if I die tonight, I hope I'll go to heaven. I don't, mm. I'm morally, I believe I'm in a good state. I'm in a state of grace. I don't know that absolutely. Only God does. It is the Lord who judges me. That's the Catholic view. That's the Catholic practice. That's what St. Paul believed. That's what St. Paul practiced. Fantastic. So let me just uh, try and summarize it, make sure I've got it clear in my head. So if a Protestant's asked me, have I been saved? My answer is yes, I've been saved by the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. I am being saved by working out my salvation in fear and trembling. And I hope to be saved uh, because I hope to endure to the end. Have I got yes. it in a nutshell? Yeah, all to right. persevere to end and you don't persevere through your own efforts. This is where hope kicks in. You're relying mm. on God's infinite power, his grace to get you to the finishing line. And you're cooperating freely with that grace. And that's also with justification, isn't it? So because we should point out that the, the initial uh, justification is a free gift from God himself. It's that uh, I think you've, you've mentioned it before, and I believe you called it prevenient grace. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Well, look, everything yeah. is gift. The fact yes. that we're saved by Jesus Christ is the greatest grace. Mm. That's a gift. It was unmerited. We did not compel God to save us. We did not compel Jesus Christ to come down from heaven and die on the cross. That's mm. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3, 16. Right? That is the greatest grace. Okay. Then I'm walking around in my life of sin and misery thinking I'm happy, you know, and then I get enlightened by God, you know, oh, I'm not living a righteous life and then and i and i move to to repent that's preventing grace god's mm -hmm. love working with me to enlighten me to move me to strengthen me right to repentance i repented i repented freely but it's in mm -hmm. response to god's preventing grace and then if i'm going to get there persevere to the end it's not through my own efforts it's by mm -hmm. working with god's grace continuously on a daily basis to reach my final destination. Awesome. And so then that brings us to that, that next uh, question. And again, I want to make sure I've got this right. So then when the Protestant then says to me, uh, do you have the assurance of salvation? I can say, well, I don't have invincible assurance of salvation, but I have a reasonable assurance of salvation because I am cooperating with grace. Is that correct? You, the first answer, keeping it simple, is that I have hope. Oh. I have hope, which is trust in God's grace to enable me to persevere. And I have hope that when I die, I go to heaven. And I'm not 
having a lack of faith there. I'm being, I'm avoiding the presumption that many Protestants engage in, and I'm mm. being like St. Paul. It, mm. you know, I read it again. Yes, let's please. Find it yeah, again. let's let's hammer you know? that one home. Yeah, let's yeah. hammer that one home. You know, mm. uh, I am not aware of anything against myself, mm. but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. One Corinthians four four. I have hope. Assurance. Mm is not the same as hope. If I have assurance, then hope has disappeared. Right? Yeah. Hope yeah, is trust it. in God to get to help me persevere on a daily basis. And when I die, I have hope that I go to heaven based on my faith, based on my works done in, in, in faith, my works of love done in faith. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna declare myself as righteous and I'm not gonna declare myself as destined for heaven that declaration comes from christ and i hear that hopefully when i come before him wonderful thank you and uh just before we uh we continue on and uh talk about some of the church fathers on this particular subject uh, i just wanted to return to uh that subject of the loss of one's justification sanctification the loss of of charity and uh, I just wondered if you would uh, briefly go over what constitutes a mortal sin for mm. us, just so that we're absolutely clear as we discuss this. Well, yes. Can we be clear? Well, we can be as clear as any catechism can be. A mortal sin from the textbook answer is when I freely choose giving full consent to do something which I know to be serious. Um, so you need serious matter, you need full knowledge of its seriousness, and you need to give full consent to doing it. Now, most people uh, know when they give full consent, so though some struggle with that. Uh, many people don't know what they're doing is, is mortally, is serious matter or not. And those who do have some ideas sometimes get caught up in scrupulosity. So we can become rather entangled sometimes with this. So you do need a good spiritual director. And I certainly have needed in the past. And I've been certainly called upon by people in the past to give my opinion as to whether an action someone has done is, is serious matter or not. When you're entangled in this and you want to receive communion on a regular basis and you're not sure whether it's something you've done is serious matter or not then you probably haven't committed a mortal sin because if you're unsure with with respect whether you've done something serious or not then you don't have full knowledge mm. okay uh and in that situation you just do an act of contrition and you go to receive communion God's not an assassin ready to take you out because you make an innocent mistake. God is loving. God is our best friend. God is joyful that you are concerned about sin. God is joyful that you're engaging in an examination of conscience. God is joyful that you want to repent for, over sin. God is joyful that you want to receive communion on a daily basis, right? We get ourselves in these knots. It's not God or the church. Okay, and we normally get ourselves in these knots because we might be of a certain psychological disposition and at the same time we're lacking clear spiritual direction, intelligent spiritual direction. Okay, um, sounds though if I, uh, if I want to try and avoid mortal sin, one of the ways to do it is to really remain ignorant of what a mortal sin is, Robert. Well, it's actually sinful to cop and culpable on your part to willfully remain in ignorance. <laughs> there you go. So you heard it here, folks. Yeah, willful so ignorance is a sin. <laughs> you've been you've been checkmated there. You know, invincible <laughs> ignorance is an in, innocent ignorance through no fault of your own. Mm. And, you don't want to uh, be like a politician who recently said, "I don't want to know about that." Indeed. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and of course, as we, we, you know, we're talking so much about sin here. One of the things I'm always telling people, because I've lived a very sinful life, you know, my testimony is called from selfishness to service, because I know that I need to be outward looking, I need to be practicing virtue. 
And so virtue and getting to know the virtues is really the antidote to sin as well. And so we should make sure that our knowledge is twofold, not only of what a sin is, because the first step in defeating evil is to name it. If I can't admit to myself that I have the disease of alcoholism, I cannot begin to defeat that evil. So I must name it. But then really it's that practice of virtue that is the antidote to sin, isn't it, Robert? Oh, absolutely. Now, it's, we, we go, it's a process here through growth. And you know, John mm. talks about perfect love drives out all fear. But the psalm says, you know, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm. Okay. And most people, the vast majority of people have to begin somewhere. And it, and it began with me like that too. It was the fear of the Lord, the fear of judgment, the fear of hell that drove me to, you know, to, to stop sinning and to try and lead a life of, of virtue and, and holiness. And, you know, I still, I'm a work in progress, but, mm -hmm. you know, we all know a mature faith and adult faith, a, a, a beautiful faith is a loving faith so that we obey the commandments. You know, it's not just a collection of don't, 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 do not, do not, do not, but it's a collection of, I love, I love God above all things. I love my neighbors, myself. And it's love that motivates us to fulfill the law in the most perfect way. As St. Paul says, love is a fulfilling of the law. And, uh, okay, we might never reach that level of Christian perfection, but we're still doing very well if we're trying to fight sin, avoid sin out of fear of God. That's good. That's, it's not perfect, but it's good. And it's necessary for most people. And really, you know, Catholic education should never simply avoid, totally avoid the fear of the law. We must teach some aspect about the fear of the law. Mm. All right. Uh, it's like, you know, we can't advance to algebra unless we've done our timetables. Mm. Okay. Mm. Uh, and when people, many of people I know, students that I taught in the past, you know, when they leave school and they abandon the regular practice of their faith and they went down the road of vice, one thing that brought many of them back was knowing that there is a hell. Yeah, yeah, mm. that's uh, that's that's excellent advice. Yeah, it, it can be a starting and place. Yeah, and we need to put that there as a foundation. Otherwise, mm, and that's a preventative against people despairing. Yeah, yeah, and I absolutely loved that you put it out there that uh, you and I are both here claiming spiritual progress not spiritual perfection because it can be very easy for some of us who are consuming a lot of uh, catholic podcasts and writings uh, to think that these greater catholic catholic apologists um, have it all together um, but they're just as human as the rest of us aren't they robert well the person who claims um catholic perfection is still a work in progress they just haven't realized <laughs> it yet uh, and you are Love right it. in the history of catholic apologists one thing we have to always guard against is pride. We saw it in Tertullian in the late second and early third centuries. I've seen it in recent decades. Some apologists, uh, I'm not going to judge them personally, I'll leave it to God, but I just talk in general terms here. They are too smart for their own good. And, and they think they know more than the church or they know more than this apologist or that apologist. And it becomes apologetics becomes a game of rivalry between follow the best and greatest apologists and it becomes a cult of personality right and we and we forget that we are servants of the people of god on behalf of the church and church teaching wonderful thank you and of course uh, all those who are listening who want to de uh, dive a little deeper into this we are uh, referring to the book by Dr. Robert Haddad, Defend the Faith. And there's a, a wonderful um, conclusion and summing up on page 38 that is well worth uh, your time and efforts. So tell us a little bit about uh, the, the, the church fathers now, uh, Robert. Tell, tell us well, about the early church and the first few hundred years of the church. Uh, were they all teaching the same thing? Well, generally they were. Um, but if this, the period of the church fathers is a period of uh, development of doctrine, okay? We've got the scriptures. And then we have, over the centuries, we have questions being raised, debate, debates occurring, controversy. Sometimes they were very extreme. 
sometimes are very divisive. You had heroes raised up in these times, in the late first century, throughout the second century, third century, fourth century in particular. These were usually men, that's why they're called fathers, right? Mm -hmm. Raised by God, they could have been laymen, they could have been clerics, priests, bishops. Um, and they wrote in response to uh, persecution or response to controversies, or they simply wrote as exegetes or commentaries on the scriptures. And we find generally there, there's a consensus there with respect to uh, Catholic teaching. Um, you know, I've given a talk in the past how the early church was Catholic, how the early church fathers were Catholic. And I've never met anyone who converted to Protestantism because they read the fathers of the church. <laughs> I do know of many a Protestant who converted to Catholicism because they read the fathers of the church because they'll find in the church fathers, you know, belief in seven sacraments, the necessity of baptism, especially the Eucharist and the real presence is overwhelming. That's what convinced me, convicted me in Catholicism, the early church fathers on the Eucharist. So we can look to the early church fathers to see what they taught about so many issues, the divinity of Christ, you know, the, the Trinity, of course, the issues of justification uh, and salvation, the necessity for good works done in faith, you know, the necessity for, uh, you know, the oral tradition, side by side with the written scriptures. So, yeah, that's why we find in nearly every chapter, Defend the Faith, extracts from the church fathers to show mm -hmm. that Catholicism is not a recent invention or just a collection of medieval accretions or post-Constantinian neo-paganisms, as many claim. But really, we find in the pre-Constantinian era, uh, those core Catholic beliefs evident in the writings of fathers from all different parts of the European, Mediterranean, North African, Middle Eastern world, not just Rome, North Africa, Palestine, Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, uh, Gaul, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and uh, of course, it was the discovery of the Church Fathers in my very first term of Protestant Bible College that really ruined my own Protestantism. So uh, thank you very much for saying that. So uh, yeah, definitely people read the Church Fathers. Now, you, there was an interesting comment, um, uh, part of what you just said that I just wanted to focus on for a moment. And, and that's where you mentioned that in the early church, doctrine was developing. So the word doctrine means teaching, right? And so you said that the doctrine is developing. Does this mean that the teachings were changing? No, it means that we get a deeper understanding of teaching. So, you know, the church was baptizing from the beginning. And we read in the Acts of the Apostles that, you know, it was quite clear that they are baptizing um, in the name of the Lord Jesus and it involved the forgiveness of sins. So later on, you know, questions are raised. Um, what does it mean by baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, it really means that's a, that's a phrase meaning Christian baptism, the baptism of Jesus Christ, which is in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And then we get issues arising, well, do we have to use water? And do we have to say these words or those words? And do mm. the saying of the words have to correspond with the pouring of the water? And when we're baptized, what actually happens? Okay, um, you know, we get sealed, we get the, the, the theological virtues, the moral virtues, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, we get the indwelling of the Blessed Trinity. And is baptism necessary for salvation? Uh, did Christ command it? So these questions are raised and they're answered. Okay, and they, you can get answers directly from reading the scriptures. But, you know, sometimes it's not that clear. And sometimes you get different verses that seem to be opposed to each other or contradict each other. And so you have this, these, you know, men of God, whoever they are, as I said earlier, they're trying to, to grapple with this and provide answers. And eventually you get a general consensus. And eventually these opinions rise to the next level where they're debated at conciliar gatherings, what we call councils. And we have the bishops of the world, however number, they vote on these issues and they, then these councils issue decrees. And these decrees contain canons and the canons define doctrines or they anathematize heresies, etc. Mm -hmm. So, and this is when we get dogmatic teaching, which liberates us, which brings us clarity and certainty and peace of mind with respect to doctrine forever. Amen. And of course, uh, we should also point out that a 
doctrine or a teaching uh, does not need to be a dogma to be infallible, does it? No, that's right, because it's, it ought to be binding because doctrine mm. is teaching revealed by Christ through the apostles. That's passed on from generation to generation through the ordinary teaching of the church. This is called the ordinary magisterium, the everyday teaching of the church universal over the century is also infallible. Dogma is next level solemn teaching in the sense that we might get a controversy that opposes what's been the regular teaching over centuries. People become confused, there's division, there's conflict, etc., etc. So we need to say, hold on, what is the Catholic teaching? What's the mechanism to determine what is the Catholic teaching? The bishops of the world gathered in union with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, and then they come, they debate, then they come with these decrees, as I said earlier. And so that teaching, which would have been in the realm of ordinary magisterium for centuries, is then defined and declared, and it's been raised to a dogma. And that is a solemn declaration by the church, uh, by in council, by the Pope alone, or the two in tandem, right? It has to be, the, you never get a council alone. It's always with the approval of the Pope, giving a definition of on a particular teaching. And that's, uh, that's been, um, that's irreformable and binding on all Christians for all time. Thank you very much for that. Very, very helpful. Uh, now you've given us uh, five quotes uh, from the fathers on the subject of uh, justification and salvation. Uh, do you have a favorite? Um, well, I think the earlier ones relate to the necessity for baptism. Mm -hmm. um, then we got, well, let's go to the one in the middle, Clement of Alexandria, around the year 217. And Clement is one of the um, early leaders of the catechetical school in Egypt. And he says the following, this is in his work, the miscellanies written around the year uh, before the year 217 AD. When you hear your faith has saved you, we do not understand the Lord to say simply that they will be saved who have believed in whatever manner, even if works have not followed. To begin with, it was to the Jews alone that he spoke this phrase, who had lived in accord with the law and blamelessly, and who had lacked only faith in the law. So, yeah, that's again very Catholic. So, Clement of Alexandria is saying, yeah, it, you, it, the, your faith has saved you, meaning it's brought you into the new and eternal covenant of Jesus Christ. You've begun a new life in Christ, a new life in grace. You, this is your initial justification. You're now a child of God, walking in faith. Uh, but you must continue on that road. And how do you continue on that road to your final destination, heaven? Well, you must, as I said, be obedient to all the teachings of the Lord Jesus, and you must be baptized because he commands it, and you must be fruitful in good works of love throughout your life. And with that, I think we'll end with the quote from the Catechism that you've given us in the book, paragraph uh, 1989. Uh, would you like to read that one for us, Robert? The first work of the grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion. So the Holy Spirit enlightens us, affecting mm -hmm. justification in, in accordance with Jesus's proclamation at the beginning of the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So to paraphrase, we don't repent through our own efforts. It's, it's in response to God's prevenient grace. Mm -hmm. Moved by grace, man turns toward God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness, righteousness from on high. Okay, when we engage it, when we repent and we believe, then the life of grace has begun within us. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification renewal of the interior man. So that, yes, when you're justified, the life of grace has begun in you, the life of the blessed Trinity and created grace. And that not just simply washes away sin, but it's actually begun a new life within us. That life that 
that Jesus says, recorded in John's gospel, John 4, John 7, the life of that river uh, that's, that's within us, that flows within us, is the life of grace. So it's not just cleaning the slate. It's actually putting something beautiful there, planting something beautiful within us. And that really sets it up, sets us up for the next chapter, doesn't it? And uh, and next month's topic, the meritorious value of works. So um, thank you, Dr. Robert Haddad, for spending uh, all this time with us. Thank you for tonight's subject and for, for sharing uh, your wisdom with us. You're most welcome, Matthew. And thanks again to you personally and Perusia for this great series. Thank you and God bless. Thank you. And that's enough from us for today. So farewell and God bless. Thanks for listening to the Perusia podcast. If you've enjoyed these podcasts, please share with your family and friends. And for more information about everything Perusia, please visit our website at perusiamedia.com.